0: Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mic check. Mic check. One, two, one, two, one, two. For you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. It's that. Biblical. Biblical. Theology. Theology. Study. The person of God. Attributes. Yeah. <coughs> God's word is like a breeze in the tropics And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit He's the king, the priest, and the prophet So please watch as we proceed with the topic Uh, And that's biblical theology That phrase alone, they give some people allergies Uh They say it's not practical enough Uh Just give me Jesus, that will be enough that seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian's not optional. Cause when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy. Wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that Biblical theology Lord God, deliver us From apostasy The human heart is Given to idolatry The situation is critical We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key is following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation, creation Commands fall to redemption To consummation yeah. His designs and structure Each time will fluster. What mind can instruct The divine conductor His worthiness sits Enthroned in the heavens Sturdy and fixed to see the importance of biblical theology yeah. the lord has not decided to keep us guessing Thank you, lord. he gave us the word providing us correction and yeah. the spirit for guidance and direction Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our affections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree which determines how rich the fruit's going to be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace with in our death, yeah, because we we'll we'll know, know the Jesus meaning of Jesus and his is. death, yeah. the Christian life is a difficult odyssey, the faithful are a statistical anomaly, the enemy wants to trick us hypnotically, that's why we need that biblical theology, Lord God deliver us from apostasy, the human heart is given to idolatry, the situation is critical, we gotta see the importance of biblical theology.
1: Welcome to another edition of Theology Matters. I'm your host, Devin Pallu. And uh, on this show, for those maybe who have not tuned in before and have not heard the show and maybe you're listening live or or maybe you podcasted the show, uh, Theology Matters is a show where we really try to get in depth a lot of the uh, theological philosophical and apologetic issues uh, within Christianity. And uh, we've done several shows on um, Mormonism, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, how to deal with cults. Uh, We've also done several uh, debates with uh, atheists, Roman Catholics, uh, as well as uh, Mormons and, and others. So, if you have not liked our Facebook page, um, you can go to Facebook.com slash Theology Matters with the Palouse, Facebook.com slash Theology Matters with the Paloos, and like our page. And if you do that, then you'll be able to um, get all of our podcasts. And uh, we also um, kind of up through, throw updates through the week, articles, and that as well, so... Feel free to uh, like the page and share it with your friends and let them know. You know, we don't make a dime from doing the show, and I just I, I throw that out there because uh, I want people to know, you know, it's we do the show because we have a passion for truth, uh, we have a passion to uh, spread the gospel, and we want to see uh, not only unbelievers come to the faith, uh, but we also want to see Christians equipped and edified and able to stand firm in the faith, and that's, that's why we do the show. So, this month, we have been going pretty hot and heavy on the uh, Protestant Reformation. Of course, October 31st is the uh, uh, day we celebrate Reformation Day, and we just wanted to just take this month to really highlight a lot of the key Protestant doctrines. Let me say this up front, because I don't want to, I don't want people to think that this show is just Roman Catholic bashing. You know, I have had, um, I have a lot of respect uh, for many uh, Roman Catholics, in fact, some of them are my favorite uh, philosophers, and some of them uh, very good apologists, and I don't want it to come across like, you know, this show is like Jack Chick, or or something like that. You know, it's it's not. I I appreciate what a lot of um, Catholics have done, and uh, you know the school I go to is very much influenced with St Thomas Aquinas. And you know I don't think anybody's going to dispute these, you know, very amazing thinkers. So yeah, I just want to just want to clear that up. You know, we are a Protestant show, and we do have disagreements with Rome just as they have disagreements with us. And so, uh, you know, they don't shy back from um, pointing out the differences and the disagreements and what they think is inconsistent on our end. And so I don't think we should be labeled anti-Catholic or anything for doing the same thing. It's, a, it's you know, we're, we we disagree. And that's, that's okay. Uh, but I don't want it to come across as though you know, every, everything a Roman Catholic says is wrong or something like that. I you know, have much respect for, for a lot of uh, Roman Catholic teaching and uh, their apologists, but obviously there are some major disagreements. And that's what we've been covering. The last uh, few weeks we've been dealing with, uh, the first week we dealt with um, the history of the Protestant Reformation and had a couple of very good uh, gentlemen on the show uh, again, you can find that on our Facebook page. You can listen to that whole show. And then um, last week we did a show on sola scriptura, and had two two Catholics call in. It was a it was a good show. I think it uh, definitely highlighted a lot of the differences, and uh, I think it I think it was a good show. I think uh, I think uh, people will be you know happy to listen to that show. I think it, it will further the discussion. Along, I think it was a good show. So tonight we're going to actually be looking at the material cause of the Reformation, uh, the view, the uh, doctrine of justification, and we're going to be highlighting some of the differences between Roman Catholicism and uh, Protestant classic uh, pro, uh, pro, uh, Protestant view of justification. And we're going to be looking at the differences as well as going over some of the objections. As well as looking at some of NT rights uh, with the, the new Paul perspective, we'll be looking at that too. So, back on the air with me is our guest Nathan Taylor. He is a graduate of Biola University uh, and Westminster Theological Seminary and Talbot School of Theology. Nathaniel ser- currently serves as ruling elder and interim pastor at Christ Church Presbyterian in Irvine, California. And uh, he's been on the show uh, quite a few times, and I think probably one of our one of our favorite times was in December when Nate uh, did a debate with a Roman Catholic apologist, Devin Rose, on the issue of *Sola Scriptura*. And that was that was good debate. We had uh, things been downloaded a couple thousand times, so it's it's pretty good. Uh, I've had some people say, "Yeah, I'd want to want to." keep turning people to uh, Roman Catholicism, keep having Nate on. But uh, as far as my estimation, as I've seen, he's done a terrific job. And to be honest, I just haven't seen a lot of uh, Roman Catholic callers. Well, we haven't had a whole lot of Roman Catholic callers, even though they've been invited numerous times. But I haven't seen any that have really posed a uh, much of a formidable challenge to Nate. And I'm not saying that, therefore, no Roman Catholics have good arguments. It's really not what I'm saying um just i haven't seen any on this show and they're invited you know we want you guys to call in it's uh it's a friendly show we're not going to attack you or or you know cut you off if, if you guys have heard the shows you hear that i let the conversation go i stay out of it so i'll, I'll you know we ask in return is be respectful uh have a dialogue not you know this isn't cross-examination on the courtroom and so hopefully you guys will, will call in and we'll be able to uh, to have some good dialogue and good good conversation. So Nate, are you there?
2: I am, Devin. It's uh good to be here again and uh let me just a uh, second what you said in your uh introduction that uh I I don't want to be perceived as someone who's uh Catholic bashing or saying negative things against Catholics cuz I, you know, don't like them or anything like that. that well, that's certainly not true. I, I love Catholics. I think, uh, you know, God bless them, and, um, you know, we are to be respectful to them and so on. So just because I've done a debate with them and people might describe my uh, my tone as uh, intense at times, that certainly doesn't uh, mean to insinuate that I, you know, that I believe in Catholic bashing. And, in fact, uh, uh, though I've, I've read Thomas Aquinas uh, a few times, uh, actually one of my favorite books in uh, philosophy of religion is written by a, a I think a Roman Catholic friar, is it? He's a philosophy guy. Uh, Brian Davies, he right. writes, I think, probably yes. the best uh, condensed philosophy of religion book I've ever read in my entire life. I've read it probably four times, so, <laughs> you know, uh, that, so my favorite philosophy of religion book is written by a Roman Catholic, so I by no means well, wish I? to be, um, you know, unnecessarily adversarial. As you said, you know, uh, in dealing with these issues and disagreements, as we have disagreements with, uh, I have disagreements with libertarians or incompatibilists on free will. I have disagreements with um, complete, you know, reductive (laughs) physicalists of the human mind and so on, or brain in in their case. I I have disagreements with them, but that doesn't mean, you know, when I I argue against them that I'm bashing them or I I hate them or something like that, we have to be careful because in our culture we get kind of sloppy, poppy, and emotional. If someone's arguing with somebody else and they go, well, he's He's hateful, isn't he? He's a hateful person. It's like, well, no, you can disagree with somebody and be their friend and, you know, offer arguments and so on and so forth and not hate somebody. You're just disagreeing <laughs> with their position. In fact, one of my good friends from high school is a uh, is an atheist, and I, I, I discuss with him, you know, issues of religion and so on when, when it comes up. But, you know, it doesn't mean that, you know, we're to have a hateful or cruel relationship with somebody just because we're disagreeing with their... Um, Uh, you know, philosophical views. And if anybody has a family who has divergent political opinions, you know, when Thanksgiving time or Christmas time comes, you know, you're all going to talk about it maybe at one point and disagree, but it doesn't mean you, 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 you're against your family member or something like this. (laughs) Also religion comes up, but nowadays everybody seems to love to talk about politics. It seems to me, it's a, it's all all the craze. People get passionate about it. So anyways, but yeah, no, I wanted
1: to second that, uh, Devin. Yeah, Yeah, that's, that's good. Um, You know, Nate, I've kind of come to the Reformed faith slowly. It's been a process for me. It's probably been about eight years in the making, and probably within the last two years, I've really come to love uh, Reformed theology. And this show isn't just, you know, it's not targeted to, um, you know, Reformed guys. In fact, most people who listen to the show are probably not Reformed. And we really don't bring it up a lot on the show because I don't want to. There's, There's good people on both sides. But the reason I bring this up is because since you know since I've really uh, come to embrace reform theology, one of the things that I see is that a lot of guys uh, that are reformed do not really have um, I don't know if it's I want to say the word understanding, but they just almost have a skepticism towards philosophy, and that's one of the things I really really enjoy about you. Uh, is uh, the, the fact that you're you know so knowledgeable in these areas what would you just what would you say to some of the the maybe the reform guys that are listening maybe to encourage them to uh to kind of embrace and get in in some of the uh, philosophy
2: yeah you know it's a it's a frustrating uh issue i have uh you know pursuing you know graduate studies in philosophy and so on uh with uh not all reform people not all not all but they're there certainly is um, many outspoken reform people on podcasts and speaking at conferences um, and writing books and publishing. Not, as I said, not all. I don't want to, you know, knock everybody down here, but um, and certainly uh, the uh, minister I serve with at Christchurch Presbyterian, Michael Preciado, actually getting his PhD in philosophy right now, and he's in the analytic tradition and works on issues of free will and moral responsibility and foreknowledge uh, consideration. Uh, Paul Helm, for instance, is also uh, into that. So not all reformed people are like that. Still, yes, there are people who for some reason or another, I don't know why this is, tend to think that um, if you're reformable then you must take philosophy and you have to you know, they uh, overemphasize scripture as if scripture were contrary to reason and that scripture were in conflict with reason and that's, um, I mean I'm more Augustinian in my uh, theory of knowledge and how I view things. I'm not Uh, I don't believe in a faith, reason, uh, distinction as strong as Thomas Aquinas does, for instance. They're very, uh, you know, Catholic or Thomistic in their view of faith and reasons. Where they seem to divorce them or they're they're distinct that, you know, we're to have philosophy over here and that's not to mess with uh, uh, theology. I believe in a more integrative approach where philosophical theology, analytic uh, philosophy – uh, it contributes greatly to systematic clarity and to even a- actually establishing facts about God through not so much natural theology like this, but general revelation, which you'd probably just call natural uh, theology, Devin. But general revelation and uh, establishing facts about God. And I-, I would say this, that if philosophy were to show or in any way strongly suggest that the Bible were unreasonable, or silly, or taught something that was a contradiction, something like this, completely counterintuitive. I wouldn't believe it. You shouldn't believe it. Um, right. Part of the reason why the Christian religion is so amazing and worth dying for is because it's true. It's a fact. Uh, it's reasonable. Right. And if it weren't reasonable, you shouldn't believe it. You know, I mean, take up Hinduism, something. I mean, you know, ha- have a good time. You know, hit the bar. You know, don't. Who cares? You know, not that people go to bars or pagans, but you, you get the you get the drift. You have a good time. Yeah, right. You know, um, if, if if Christianity uh, were not reasonable, uh, you shouldn't believe it. You shouldn't believe the scriptures at that point. So part of what makes it so amazing is that First uh, Peter three fifteen says you have to offer a defense, and if it, if it were a contradiction, it was unre- unreasonable, irrational. You couldn't offer a defense. And so inherent in, in the scriptures themselves is that they are in fact. Uh, reasonable. I was actually uh, convinced of Christianity by listening to uh, Greg Bonson debate Gordon Stein when I was about, uh, I would say, about 20 years old. And so um, my coming to Christianity and Reformed theology was on the basis of arguments and reason. And, um, you know, you just, you can't start off with reason and arguments and then kick them away once you become a Christian. Like, well, it doesn't matter anymore. Well, no, it certainly does matter in all areas of life. So I would encourage people to be more consistent. And if it is if we're so insecure and afraid to defend Christianity with reason and arguments, um, then your faith's not worth it. If that's that's how it is, if that's what it comes down to, you should be able to offer a defense and and reasons for it. And so it is unfortunate that many Reformed people tend to have this very strange view that philosophy is just inherently pagan, you can't use reason and so on, when, uh, in fact, I would say um, a careful use uh, and clear thinking in philosophy actually establishes and shows that, I think Christianity's the only reasonable religion out there.
1: Yeah, I remember having a conversation one time with Dr. Norm Geisler, and uh, he founded actually the school where, where I go. And and talking with him about uh, you know what the what degree program I should go in, whether the the MA in Apologetics or MA in Philosophy. But one of the things that came up is he said y- you cannot be a good apologist, a very good, well-rounded apologist, unless you know philosophy. You really have to have a good, you know, a decent working understanding of philosophy in order to be, a, you know, a, a great apologist. And, you know, as I, I started thinking about that, I think he's right. I mean, you, and I don't mean to disparage people, but you have like Elise Grobles, Josh McDowell, good defenders of the faith. But you're you know the, the the guys like William Lane Craig and JP Moreland and Geisler and uh you know, some of these guys, Edward Fazer and these guys that are just so brilliant, it really is this background in philosophy that really seems to make a lot of difference. You know, a lot of difference.
2: Oh, absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why I, I pursued uh graduate studies work in philosophy. That's that's precisely the reason. Um, you know, it's like a, it's, I mean, I don't want to be too combative. I've done the debate in here, so less anybody think I'm obsessed with combat. Um, you think of it as a fighter, right? Now, uh, someone who studies apologetics per se, uh, they, you know, the books will teach you how to counter certain moves. Okay. When a guy says this, say this, you know, or it's here are the evidence. And if he says that, then you've got to say this It's very kind of mechanical input output sort of thing. Um, but how it's like training a fighter. Like if a guy comes at you with a punch, you know, you move out this way. Or if he does this sort of punch, you move out this sort of way. But what philosophy does is that it actually equips you to dodge any sort of thing that comes your way. It gives you the general ability that if he puts in a new move or a new, uh, a new strike in or a new kind of ornate uh, sort of uh, attack on you, you can learn how to dodge it, maneuver around it. And so it gives you a more full-orbed way in being creative and having your own responses in a way that allows you to be a critical thinker and to put, you know, your P's and Q's together. And so, in that way, uh, uh,
1: philosophy can be very helpful. Very good analogy. I like that. And, it, you know, it's, it's, it's sad. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's one of those things where I see just a lot of Christians in general are just skeptical about philosophy, and they almost think, even with apologetics. I mean, some of the, some of the um, most opposition I get is from other Christians. I remember yeah. a guy... You know, we were, we were, I was teaching um, at a church here in Charlotte, and um, it was right around the time school was, was getting ready to come back. And uh, I was showing the, the DVD, Icons of Evolution, and then afterwards we were going to talk for about an hour and do questions and that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, I thought it would be a great idea to show that video and try and equip these, these kids who were going to go back into schools and get just pummeled with, you know, with Darwinism. And, uh, man, I remember this one particular guy uh, with two young sons, like, you know, 10 and 12 years old, and he refused to come and watch the DVD or even let his kids partake in the discussion because he really thought that it was somehow undermining the word of God or prideful or something. It was was something to that effect. I I just remember thinking, man, I felt sorry for those kids. Because unwittingly, I don't think he know, obviously. I don't believe he knows it, but man, that's that's a good way to breed a couple atheists right there. Oh, it, it,
2: exactly, and and that's exactly what it uh, what it does. Um, you know, it's a sort of pie It's not it's not faith as taught in the Word of God, but it's a sort of pietistic, Kierkegaardian, irrational leap of faith where, and you just got to reach out in the ledge and grab on without any reasons at all. And um let me tell you something. I mean I was taught that growing up in the assemblies. Not that all assemblies of God people teach this, but you know, this sort of irrational leap of faith that you make. And uh quite frankly, you know, when you have to make a moral decision, you know, say lying to get out of trouble or um or telling the truth, well if you're not really sure Christianity's true and it's just like a leap in the dark, then I'm gonna I'm gonna bet my chances on that uh on, on you know, maybe, you know, Less mo- mo- like m- less moral motivation to tell the truth because you know who knows if it's true, and so right. it gives you actually a lack of moral motivation and conviction to follow your faith and to even be willing to die for it. If someone had a gun to my head, for instance, and says, "Do you believe in Jesus Christ?" and it's obviously, if I were to say yes, I get shot, and um, no, it, I, I would I would be saved from my life would be saved at least. Right. Um, then you know I mean what am i what kind of moral conviction am I going to have if i'm not even sure if this is true um and I'm just making yeah. this irrational leap in the dark uh, that's no way to make rational decisions and I, I think that's in fact irrational
1: yeah it's its it's you're you're absolutely right and on a, on a practical level, you know you get this I have this charges uh, a lot of times that uh apologetics is all head and no heart, and there's no practical use. And I'll tell you, I remember, you know, in the hospital almost well, be almost three years ago in January, almost dying. I mean, really, really was dying. And then taking yeah, me back to the emergency room to intubate me. I mean, they were, because I couldn't breathe. You know, I got the, I don't know if I've said this on air for people before, but I got the swine flu in 2010 of January, or 2011, I guess it was. And uh, it almost killed me, put me in a coma for a month, in a hospital for 72 days, and left me disabled and kind of in a bad way. But I remember as they were taking me back to the hospital or into the emergency room to intubate me because I couldn't breathe and I knew they were going to have to put me out, uh, knowing, hey, I might not wake up. There's a very good chance I might not wake up. And I remember praying, uh, you know, Praying to, to, to Christ, but I also remember, um, you know, thinking about what happens, you know, when I wake up and where I wake up. And I really remember I was actually running arguments for God's existence through my mind.
3: <laughs> How do I know God, yeah. <laughs> How do I know God
1: exists? Yeah. How do I know God exists? How do I know the Bible is true? How do I know that, you know, things are going to be – and you know what? Those arguments on a practical level, they gave me so much peace. And I was able to, you know, to, to have that mask put on my face and close my eyes and know that no matter what happened, you know, wherever I woke, it was going to be, uh, it was going to be okay, you know, one way or another. Yeah. So on a practical level, apologetics does help. It makes a big difference.
2: So, oh, it, 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 you, it, it certainly does, and I I'm, I am glad that you have recovered from that, and it's certainly a blessing to God, and it, it does show though that. And myself too, I, I have those thoughts sometimes you know uh, these sort of uh, intu- ran, running intuitions that, "Oh well, what if this is not true?" and so on and that's what I call the Noetic effects of sin, and nothing um, stamps out the Noetic effects of sin better than uh, arguments and actually reading the Bible yourself and, and seeing how obviously true it is and um, how apparent it is and uh, that's why Romans one says, God has revealed himself to everybody you know in all, in all creation and we are without excuse, and so our thoughts and our our faith is weak at times, and um, it certainly is strengthened by following the biblical command to give a defense uh, for it, and that means sometimes giving a defense of it to ourselves.
1: So right, I don't know. That's 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 good. That is. Let me uh, you, just real quick before we jump into the show. You had said that you were you were actually you were in the Assemblies of God Church as well. I was. Yeah, I was in the Assemblies of God uh, for.
2: About, I'm going to say, all the way since I was raised, raised yes, five or six, uh, I was raised in it and um, was baptized as 11. I went to church about once um, every month sometimes, maybe once every two months. I didn't go very often because I didn't really know if it was sure because I was taught by people that who knows if it's true. And so when you're being around people and they're kind of um, heartily, I mean, they're very Uh, persuasively telling you don't know whether or not this is true, um, it really influences your church attendance. It it does. And also a lot of hypocrisy in the church as well (laughs) growing up. That made me very hardened by the time I was in high school and um, not really sure. But Fortunately, I had some friends who were pretty persistent all throughout my high school years um, and those friends showed me the great debate. Um, So uh, that's really what uh, has me here today and so I'm very thankful for God's grace working in my life it certainly is a wonderful thing and uh uh, and i'm glad to to be um regenerate
1: so yeah i I was right through that whole whole thing though yeah well just uh take a couple minutes i'm curious on your thoughts on uh if any if anybody who's not been living under a rock (laughs) and is on uh, facebook or on the internet you see the uh the strange fire conference going on in uh California by uh, Pastor John MacArthur and uh, Grace Community Church, and he has some he has some high level speakers there. He's got Steve Lawson and R.C. Sproul, uh, Johnny Tata, Justin Peters, some pretty some pretty powerful, pretty powerful voices. And uh, man, it is really it's really costing up. Where I know Michael Brown uh, has been publishing articles and wanting to do a uh, a debate with. With John MacArthur and that what, what, are your, what are some of your thoughts on that on this whole issue Do you think this well, is a conference worth having Or
2: Right well I mean I, First off I love John um, I think he's a great guy um, And I, I think he stands for the truth of the gospel And uh, he's definitely A good Calvinist of any And he's also a cessationist As I'm a cessationist I don't believe the revelatory gifts has uh, continued on And so I, as you can tell from my debates in the past On the show that's been a Issue on the topic of sola scriptura that I have, uh, you know, suggested. But uh, you know, in terms of the actual uh, conference, um, you know, John can sometimes generalize things or put things into a simplistic light. And so it probably, if what I've heard is correct, and you know, I'm, I, my memory has never served me too well on these sorts of uh, sociological details in the church and so on. But I don't know if it's the best idea to clump all Pentecostals together into one, you know, you know right. lump of uh, lump of hay. I just don't think that's the best way of doing it. You know, you want to distinguish the word faith healers from uh, people who, you know, were probably more responsible. Like in the Assemblies of God, for instance, I didn't see too much snake handling or, you know, word of faith right. when I was in the assembly. They were pretty, uh, somewhat responsible in preaching the gospel in, in some capacity. Uh, They weren't complete open heretics or something like that. So uh, it's probably unfair. I remember when I was uh, going to Reform Baptist church when I first was Mm -hmm. converted, and it was very annoying because uh, they were arguing against infant baptism, and I at the time was leaning towards it, uh, you know, listening to a lot of Kim Myrtlebarger and Greg Bonson and White Horse and stuff and getting involved with that. And it was frustrating because he clumped all Roman Catholics, all Eastern Orthodox, and all Protestant Presbyterian reformed in the same lump. And it was, he'd mock it and say that it was magic and magic water, and, you know, that's just not uh, a fair representation at all. And So right. um, I imagine that's how these Pentecostal folks feel who are, you know, I mean, J.P. Moreland, I believe, is a Pentecostal, and, you know, he's, yeah. he's, uh, he doesn't do anything like the word faith healers. He's a very great evangelist and defender of uh, Christianity, respect him greatly, so, uh, you know, and there's a lot of other brothers and sisters in Christ I have who have continuationist sympathies, and they're not all part of, you know, certain extremes or abuses in that church, so it's probably not right to clump them all together, and, you know, he could do a conference, which would be more careful, saying, we're going to do this part in the word, Word faith, you know, movement and talk about yeah. heresies they spread Then we'll, you know, give a gentle Kind of rebuke of our brothers and sisters who hold The
1: continuationism
2: I think that would have been a more responsible And caring way to present the truth
1: Yeah, you know, and, and I'll be honest The words that he's saying, you know, like this is You know, the other guys are con men and, and most of this is of the devil And it's pretty hard language You know, if that was just put At the word of faith, people He, he wouldn't have any argument with me you know at all I think word of faith yeah. theology is absolute perversion of the gospel and dangerous and i think I think these guys need to be absolutely need to be called out you know and when Michael Brown and I respect Michael Brown, but when he says things like uh you know the very frequent or very very infrequent very very minimally does uh you know um Kind of the, it, It's certainly not the norm of bad teachings from Charismatic and Pentecostals. I just don't think that's – I don't know how true that is. I mean, Charismatic – or uh, Word of Faith theology permeates Charismatic and Theolo- Pentecostal movements. Not all of them. Um, not all of them. There are very good faithful ones that aren't, but a lot of them do. You know, you can't – Yeah, I've, I've actually seen Orthodox ones uh, go
2: from Word of Faith in a matter of years seen that transition yeah. take
1: place in churches, yeah. you can't you can't turn on Christian television or hardly Christian radio without hearing that nonsense. So granted it, you know, not all of them hold to that view, um but it's certainly not few and far between like like Michael Brown. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's that's certainly true. Alright my friend, let's uh now that we've uh <laughs> squandered thirty minutes, I guess we should should just stop <laughs> here. Good good stuff, Bye stuff why uh, for those of you who missed the podcast, why should we care about uh, the Protestant Reformation today? This is you know something that happened uh, a long time ago, and why should we as Christians even be concerned about uh, about this now today? How does it apply?
2: yeah, I, it's it's a very good question and I, I would say we should be concerned uh, about it in only insofar as you know, what happened to the church back there? then to see certain uh, events occur in history. And as it's sad to say, so much history repeats itself. And uh, we have to be careful to look at the uh, past and not be arrogant of what our brothers and sisters have taught us going through the church and so on, and um, what events took place. But more importantly, I think it's important to look back to it to see how uh, doctrines develop and what, uh, how they're brought up through history. I certainly think, Sola Scriptura and um, Sola Fide, or Scripture alone and justification by faith alone, were, were brought out through the uh, early uh, church uh, history and by, taught by the church fathers, I believe. Um, certainly not all, but I do believe you know, uh, you know a, a good clump of them were taught. And so it's important to look through history to see this and to see how um, these sorts of things beca- begin to uh, occur and how they affect things. But uh, I think the teaching is the most important part, ultimately. And what the Reformation taught... Was We usually talk about sola scriptura, scripture alone, and justification by faith alone. And uh, there's no question, I mean, other than I can think of that, I I would say this is equally important, maybe God existing, that question whether or not he exists is equally important to this, but how can a man be right before God? How am I, uh, when I go before the Lord, uh, when I die someday, before him, and he says, why am I going to let you into heaven? What are you going to say? I mean, there's no question... It is more relevant and more pertinent than that. And that was one of the foundational pillars of the Reformation, is how is a man right before God? And the Reformed answer, the Protestant answer, was by faith alone. And uh, that faith acts as an instrument or as a tool by which to apprehend uh, Christ's righteousness. And and uh, we are, our sins are then forgiven, um, and our sins are imputed to Christ on the cross. They're legally transferred um you know, almost like you can transfer debt around. So Christ earned merit for us. He, uh, he got, you know, rewards for us, uh, almost like someone accrues money, and then they transfer that money into a bank account. So I'm imputed with Christ's righteousness, his works. And so when I stand before God on the Day of Judgment, the, uh, the Reformation taught that I am to say that I am made right on the basis of Christ's imputed righteousness. And that was by faith and faith alone not anything wrought in me, nothing intrinsically special about me, but only uh, on the basis of Christ's righteousness. And so I don't think any questions other than maybe whether or not God exists is more important than that. That's that's certainly, you know, people want to know what's going to happen when they die, whether or not God exists, and uh, also if God does exist, how am I going to enter into glory worshiping God for all eternity? How am I going to enter into heaven? That's a very important question, I take it.
1: Maybe you can walk us through a little bit. What um, what are what are the differences between? Well, what does the Roman what does Roman Catholicism teach about the nature of justification? Just so we kind of see what. Yeah, we, what and the it's it's
2: important uh, important to discuss this because there's a lot of confusion nowadays. You read certain statements by the Pope, and it seems like to the untrained eye that he might be affirming justification by faith alone. But here is one thing that the Roman Catholic Church teaches, uh, among many things actually, but here's one thing that you can really spot it. You know, there's a lot of you know evangelicals and Catholics together and joint statements on justification and so on where the Catholics and the evangelicals agreed because of not being clear about these things. On the Roman Catholic view, when I am declared righteous, when God says you are righteous in my sight, on the Roman Catholic view, God is declaring me righteous because I am actually intrinsically righteous by God's grace, God's transforming, infusing grace, Um, as it says in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, 2019. Justification includes remissions of sins, sanctification, and the renewal of the inner man. Justification includes those things. Uh, It also says in 1989 on justification in in the Catholic Church, uh, justification is not only the remission of sins, but also sanctification and renewal of the interior man. So it, it is uh, basically that you are justified insofar as you're internally wrought and sanctified by God's graciousness, and uh, which is God transforming you and infusing you with righteousness through grace. And so um, as 2023 says, Sanctifying grace is the gratuitous gift of his life that God makes to us. It is infused by the Holy Spirit to the soul to heal it of sin and to sanctify it. So the Roman Catholic view says that I am justified insofar as I am sanctified. Justification and sanctification basically become the same thing. God can only declare you righteous if you're actually intrinsically righteous. And that's the Roman Catholic view. People might be saying what's the problem with that The problem with that is it contradicts the Bible (laughs) Romans 4.5 says that God Declares righteous uh, The ungodly And that the ungodly is Righteous by faith alone Um, And so Contrary to the claims of Rome That we are declared righteous When we are in fact intrinsically righteous It's not true at all On the, the Protestant view that that's the case We are declared righteous when we are ungodly there's nothing right intrinsically with us when we're declared righteous. There's no basis in us. It's extrinsic. Uh, it's that old Martin Lutheran halogy that God, that we are nothing but piles of dung or poop. You know, if some young kids are listening that won't understand what poop means. I'm sure, <laughs> poop. Um, and we are merely covered in snow. In the white snow of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so in this life we struggle with sin, and yet we are declared righteous. And that, that, that I know as a, as a believer that when I sin daily, I am still declared righteous by the perfect righteousness of Jesus Jesus Christ. I have peace with God because I'm clothed in His righteousness, and that I when I when I do commit a sin, I don't, you know, worry late nights about my salvation and I would because God is a perfect being and he has a perfect standard and I failed his standard numerously and um, so that is where you know assurance salvation is at and that's how I know I'm right before God because on the basis of Christ's righteousness and my faith in the Lord Jesus and so you know it's that's the distinction there between the Catholic and the Protestant view Um, so uh,
1: if you want to throw another question out I'll go into further let, let me ask because I, I do see sometimes a lot of straw men, even from the from the Protestant side as well. Uh, well, they will say things like uh, Roman Catholics believe you are saved by by works. Maybe you could you could kind of break that down a little bit because
3: yeah. we don't want
1: to be so, you know making yeah. straw men as Protestants either. We well, want to be faithful to to what uh, believe. But maybe break that down for us.
2: Right. Well, you're you're not going to like me when I say this, Devin. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting Uh-oh. because there is some truth to that that Roman Catholics believe that on a Protestant view, but on a Catholic view that's not the case. Catholics would never articulate their view of salvation. Um, so, if we want to be, if we want to properly represent the Catholic view as they define it, then yes, that is a misrepresentation. R.C. Sproul uh, points it out numerous times it's a misrepresentation of what Rome teaches. That's true. But, yeah. I have to, I have to be precise here, and I have to be honest, that from a Protestant perspective, justification would be by works. And the reason why I'm saying this is because as Rome understands faith, it's not just an instrument or a tool that apprehends Christ's righteousness, but it's, um, actually, um, it's actually, you know, something that pours out grace and love, you know, uh, the state that works through love. And so they, um, which is a biblical concept, by the way, but I would take it in sanctification and not in justification. So they view faith as a as a virtue, as something that is very similar to how a Protestant construes works. And so a faith uh, a a faith on Catholicism, as viewed by a Protestant, is actually seen as a work because Paul contrasts between faith and works. You know, doing the law and then you know trusting in faith, and this distinction here. And so the way that Catholics speak about faith. It seems as if how a Protestant would usually construe talking about a work. Protestants historically don't like to say that faith is a virtue. It's good to have, insofar as it works in- instrumentally to receive Christ's righteousness. That's certainly good. But yeah, um, right. on the Roman Catholic, it's actually an intrinsic thing that on the basis of this faith and the sanctity and wrought in you, you're actually intrinsically good in your declared right. And so, um, in that sense, then, yeah, as Protestants would see it, it is works-based salvation. It's it's not, you know, Pelagian, obviously. It's semi-Pelagian, as we would pr- try to construe it. It's not like, you know, without, they obviously work through the grace of God, so it's not the sort of Pelagian works-based salvation as construed by uh, some unnuanced nuanced versions. But, um, so we want to be careful. We want to say, yes, Mr., uh, friendly Roman Catholic, yeah, This I view that as a work, but on your view, as you articulate it, it wouldn't be a work. It would just be faith. And so we have to be careful to talk about how people view things and how people, uh, you know, assume or hold certain paradigms or worldviews and how they define their terms. And that's very important when talking about these things. A lot of confusion can take place. And so um, yeah, uh, I know that's a mouthful, but I, I think it's important. I know our people does
1: say that, you know, a lot. Yeah, that's good. So sometimes maybe there's just um, sometimes it can be hard because I know there's equivocation going on when you got two very similar groups using the same words and and yet different meanings are attached to the words. So sometimes you, you you think you're talking about the same thing and maybe not. But yeah. one of the things you brought up and maybe it's probably probably an important place to start um, is dealing with the condition of man. Uh, right, because as you talked about being justified Maybe you could contrast a little bit uh, The Reformed view of man and their depravity And the uh, the Roman Catholic view of man and depravity um, And then I guess we'll kind of get into the uh, Different views of justification And how that happens
2: Right, yeah, and I mean obviously you have some form of they. They would say that, you know Adam in, in the fall, you know, prior to the fall, had grace in him, that a man always needs grace, you know, to to do what is good. Um, they would say that, but they would apply it more universally and less specifically than Calvinists. We would say God's grace is only for those who are fallen and um, who have not, you know, who are not regenerate. Uh, God's grace is needed to them, and God's grace works effectively in their hearts to sufficiently, regenerate them, and it's only given to the elect and to those who are, you know, truly believers in Christ Jesus. And that also, um, and I mean, Catholics would probably affirm this, that without the grace of God, you know, man is sick and depraved, but they would try to say, well, the reason why man has these sort of faculties to reason and do certain things is because God's grace does work in him and some general sense, and uh, now that's another issue. But Uh, Yeah, so on Calvinism typically We say without the grace of God You know, you you can't Have any work which is such that That work is good You can't have good works You can't do anything good And that's from Romans 8 It says that um, those who are in the flesh Can't please God And a good work, anything like that Would be be pleasing to God And so, um, whereas I think You know, Roman Catholics many times Would want to broaden it out And say no, a natural man can do good And so on and so that's the condition we're in, is we're fallen and dead. And uh, depending on if you're talking to an, uh, different types of Arminians or Catholics, they'll try to say that too. But, oh, but if you add the grace of God to everybody generally, then, of course, we're not really dead. We're doing pretty good and so on. So you're going to have things like that occurring. So the debate is very nuanced. But um, uh, I would say the, the typical straightforward reading of the Bible suggests that all men are, are depraved. That's to say um, they're not as evil as they could be. They're not, you know, you know, uh, you know, raping and pillaging and burning down houses constantly, but they uh, are selfish, and uh, they do some common good in the sense that they help societies and so on, but they don't do any spiritual good before God. Um, and they, while they, they certainly, you know, can help a grandma across the street and so on, older lady, they would do that with the intention and the desire in the heart, not out of honoring God, but, you know, in some sense, uh, not... With, with reference to God And no good work can be really good Unless it has some reference within God So um, And glorifying him So uh, that would be the difference And uh, there's c- certain ways to speak of the noetic effects Of sin too um, And I would I would take it that every part Of the human being is affected by sin In one way or another you know. And this probably goes back to why certain Calvinists Don't like to uh, Like philosophy because of the noetic effects of sin But um the noetic effects of sins don't make you uh, brain dead or mentally disabled. They just make you immoral. <laughs> so <laughs> that's all that means. Uh, they just make you extremely immoral. And uh, you're thinking you're immoral. It's not like you don't know truth or anything. You're just immoral. You think immorally. Um, as uh, Van Til says, you can have certain people that are very sharp, right? But it's that uh, if, if you look at a razor and that razor's aimed the wrong way at the wood, it'll cut up the wood no matter how sharp it is. It's better to have a dull razor that's aimed directly in the right a position at the wood. So it, get, it cuts the wood up in straight little pieces and so on. Uh, but if the razor is the wrong way, then it cuts it up and destroys the wood, no matter how sharp it is. So unbelievers can be very sharp, right? But um, they will cut up the wood. They'll they'll use their reason for destructive purposes. And so yeah, that would be kind of a general view is that, yeah, total inability, you're unable to come to God without God's sufficient grace and then a total inability, you can... Or, or total depravity, that you can do no good work and that, sh- and that basically um, your entire human nature in some way or another is going to be affected by sin.
1: Okay, well, let me do this. I'll go ahead and, and uh, we can open up the phone lines here, 760 760 and uh here to take your calls, maybe you... Are in agreement or disagreement? Uh, love to love to talk with you. Feel free to to call in, and we can we can uh, discuss this important uh, issue and important topic. So, uh, let's see, Nate. Do you want to do you want to go a little more in depth, maybe, as to the Protestant view of uh, justification? Why, yeah. Gonna, let's that a little bit.
2: Yeah. Let me just give a yeah just a, a definition of it from the Westminster Larger Catechism, Question 70, and then we'll probably move, uh, and I want to tie it into the Atonement and Act of Obedience, and then we should probably move to discuss uh, general objections to the uh, doctrine of justification we hear from different uh, camps. I think we need to get to the objection uh, section, and uh, also, uh, before we do that, though, as I give the definition, I'll, I'll give some scriptural backing for it, if that sounds okay. Sure. Okay, so looking at uh, question 70 on the Westminster um, Larger Catechism here, it says, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace unto sinners in which he pardons all of their sins, accepts them on account of their persons righteous in his sight, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputing it to them and received by faith alone. So, um, basically the thought here is that in justification we are imputed Christ's righteousness, and that means Christ earns for us righteousness, and also our sins are imputed to Christ. Christ in our place on the cross experiences hell, and we receive this gift of forgiveness of sins, the atonement, and the righteousness of Christ by faith. And, you know, it's often said that there's no passages in the Bible that teach Uh, these doctrines of justification by faith alone. That that is to say that there is uh, only faith is what receives the righteousness of Christ, and there is no work which is such that it contributes to your righteous standing before God. On the day of judgment, we're standing before him, and he says, why should I let you into heaven? There is no work you can appeal to. There is no work you can appeal to. And so uh, only to Christ's righteousness and you having faith in, in Christ. So, okay, what, what passages clearly teach this? Um, I alluded to this, but Romans uh, 4.5.8, and this is something we are going to come back to probably a few times in discussion of different objections, Romans 4.5.8, And to the one who does not work but trust him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So the justification of the ungodly. This is just as David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. So the person does have sin, but those sins are being forgiven and covered. And blessed mm-hmm. is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin or impute his sin. So there's a legal reality going on here. A person is sinning, but God is not imputing or counting that sin against them. And why? Because it was counted against Christ on the cross. That's why. And so there's this legal uh, aspect, this forensic aspect here. And it's so obvious, and to the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly. Um, The Greek word here is dikiao, and every time this word is used, it means to declare right. Roman Catholics will try to take this verse and say that dikiao means that God transforms you and makes you righteous, because in the Roman Catholic view, if you remember, you can only be declared righteous if you're actually godly or righteous. But the problem is that Greek word can't mean that. There's not a single instance in all the New Testament, in all the Septuagint, in all Greek writing, where dikaiō means that God transforms you, makes you righteous, and declares you righteous. Every time dekaio, or justifies in the English here, is used, it always means that God declares you righteous. And according to Romans 4, 5, when does God declare you righteous? He declares righteous the ungodly. His faith is imputed as righteousness. We have a declaration of righteousness on the basis of the work of Christ, His righteousness, His good works, and so uh, that passage clearly teaches that. And as for the alone aspect, here's just a kind of a straight, two two kind of straightforward ways of doing it. And this is a really quick too. <laughs> um, when I do evangelism, I present the gospel to people. I present justification by faith alone. People usually say, "Well, if justification by faith alone is true." then you can do whatever you want. You can burn down a Walmart. You can shoot people, you can pillage, rape, destroy, do whatever you want to do, you know? I mean, if it's, because you know what? You're saved by faith, so you're going to do whatever you're going to do, and you don't have to do any works. That's the sort of objection you get, and that's actually the objection you get from many Roman Catholics about uh, justification by faith alone. But it's so interesting that Paul gets the very same objection in Romans 6.1 after he presents his gospel of justification by faith.
4: He says, can we sin all we
2: want, that grace may abound? Now, how in the world could that objection ever arise, ever arise when you believe that you have to do good works for the grace of God to merit um, congruently your salvation? How, how could you, if you believe that your, your works do contribute to your salvation, how could that objection ever arise in the Roman Catholic view? It could only arise if you hold to justification by faith alone, so Romans six one is just there's no explanation, there's no account from a Roman Catholic as to how uh, they are to, to you know give an expl- explanation of that verse. There's no good explanation, no good account of it. Um, and so, but from the Protestant perspective, we obviously do have account of it. And then, of course, very straightforwardly, Romans three says you know we hold that a man is justified apart from works of the law. In very clear passage. And then Ephesians two eight, um through ten says, you know, we're saved we're saved by grace through faith. This not of works, not of your own doing and so on. So we have passages like that. Um
1: and let, let you know we, you, it, Let me ask you but, this, Nate Because I've I heard some thought. I've heard some Roman Catholics object when it's it's saying, uh, can't be saved by works of the of the law. Break that down a a bit. What exactly is going on in that verse? What is what does he well, mean by that? Yeah,
2: a lot is going on there. Um And this is going to, you know, enter into our, this is a nice transition at Devin. I don't know if this was providentially planned. It probably was by God. (laughs) Because according to Ephesians 1.11, all things are. But I was just about to go to the objection portion, and and that was a great transition. Because the new perspective on Paul and uh, Roman Catholics use a similar strategy here. At least some, uh, James Dunn uses this. Um, And uh, Aragon Namu, works of law, that phrase in Greek it is argued that that only is referring to Jewish ceremonial badges, things to do with being a Jew. So, for instance, it's saying that um, you're justified by faith apart from doing all this stuff that makes you a Jew, basically. And so it's talking about the Gentiles trying to be included in the church, and Paul is addressing that issue and trying to say, no, you should include the Gentiles. You're saved by faith. You're in the church by faith and not by, um, you know, uh, these sort of Jewish ceremonial rites, these sort of, uh, boundary markers that make you a Jew and not a Jew. And that's how Roman Catholics, even have it kind of historically argued in some sense, that, yes, Ergon Namu, this works of law, uh, don't mean any and all works, but certain types of works. Some Roman Catholics will say things like, oh, this means that Aragon um, ergo, uh, Namu means bad works. Bad works, for instance. That's something that they'll, you know, try to say. And so they'll, they'll say that, Ergon Namu is referring to certain types of works, not any and all works. And so that passage I cited from Romans 3 saying we hold that a man is justified apart from works of the law is not an evidence for sola fide because it's only excluding certain types of works, not uh, excluding certain Christian good works of sanctity. And uh, in response to that argument, so I'm going to respond to the general argument that uh, it refers to Jewish markers, ceremonial markers, and I'll move to the objection that it is referring to the only bad works. So if okay. you look, uh, for instance, at Romans 2.15, this is an argument against it being a counterexample. It's an instance where it's not true that Aragon Namu means Jewish works or Jewish uh, badge rites here. Uh, 2.15, They, this is about the Gentiles. They, they, the Gentiles, show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Aragon Namu there, The work of the law is written on their hearts While their conscience also bears witness And their conflicting thoughts accuse them Or even excuse them Here we're talking about the Gentiles Who don't have the law in context Who nonetheless um, Have this work of the law written on their heart The general, you know, moral Natural law they have on their hearts They know what's right And what's wrong And so that's not referring to Jewish ceremonial laws Or, or uh, badges It's referring to works in general and it wouldn't make any sense either for this to referring to bad works. That doesn't make any sense. Why would that? Why would it be evidence that they do the law so they have bad works written on their hearts? So that's also a very confusing um, uh, way to understand the Roman Catholic view. So or some, how some Roman Catholics try to, uh, you know, explain this. They say Aragon the moon means bad works, but uh, how can this be bad works here? I it doesn't really make any sense. And then. Um, but then you just have, uh, to respond to the bad works objection, you just have general passages that seem not to be so concerned with uh, works of law, but uh, really just any and all works uh, whatsoever. Uh, for instance, Romans 11.6 says, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And uh, it's interesting that Paul in Romans 4.16 says, This is why it depends on faith in order the promise may rest on grace. So the only incompatible with grace here, with a gracious justification of faith. Uh, works can't be compatible with that. And it doesn't say works of law. It just says works here. Arrogant, just regular works. Um, and so it doesn't seem like there's some distinction here with a certain type of work, or there's any reason to think that. And, Devin, let me tell you, I think the best evidence that there's no types of work being talked here, but this refers to any and all works,
1: is because of mm-hmm. that
2: phrase in Romans 6.1. Uh, do we sin only want that grace may abound? Well, if certain works, right. uh, if not all works are excluded from justification, then, of course, that objection doesn't make any sense. Because if, in fact, there are works that justify us, then Paul's objection doesn't make any sense why we come up. And so that would be, a, you know, a sign, an indication why Aragon and Amu has to re- refer to all types of works. Because that's, that's what generates Paul's, you know, anticipated objection. Chances are, if you're getting the same objection as Paul, uh, chances are you're on the same side as Paul on doctrine and that (laughs) Roman Catholics don't get objections like that. But I think Jonathan Edwards actually pointed out something very intriguing about um, the passages around Romans 3 that uh, show us, interestingly, how this has to be referring to um, justification by faith alone. Uh, he, He mentions the fact that through these passages in Romans three, it talks about not being able to boast. Uh, Romans three twenty-seven, to be more precise. Then what becomes of boasting? Is it, it is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. And so, here very interestingly, it excludes boasting. This, but of course, if you could add or contribute to your justification, then you do have right. something to boast about hey, I'm actually intrinsically righteous. I'm actually righteous. I I need to be declared righteous. You do have something to boast about. And so the best explanation of these boasting sort of passages and these passages where Paul anticipates these objections, can we still want that grace may abound, is that Paul is not excluding one type of work. He's excluding all works
1: from justification. Wow. That's powerful. (laughs) That, okay. is, uh, that is definitely powerful. Let's do this. At 7:02, let's take a break for a minute real quick and uh, let me let me open up the phone lines again. 760 542 3907. 760 542 3907. Really would love to uh to hear from any Protestants or, or Roman Catholics or or maybe, you know, maybe Eastern Orthodox or wherever your position is. We we'd love to hear from you. And, uh, if you've heard our shows in the past, we have good, uh, reasonable dialogue. It's not a, not a shouting match or anything like that. So you don't have to be worried to call in. We, uh, want to hear from you. We really do want to engage some, some good thinking, uh, Roman Catholics and have some good dialogue on this. So, uh, we'll do this. We'll go ahead and take a break. And then when we'll come back, uh, we'll keep going on with the discussion and, uh, Answering the objections uh, that are often given against Sola Fide. Welcome to the One Minute, ap-
5: minute Apologist. If you had one minute to be able to unpack the audience, what about those who've never heard about Jesus Christ? And how does intelligent design
4: differ from a theological doctrine of creation? How do you answer that? Well, creation is always about the source of being. Where does everything come from? And uh, one, one way you might, might illustrate that is a joke that was making around on the internet some years back where scientists come to God and they say, we can do everything you can do. God says, oh, that's interesting. Show me. And then they say, well, we can, uh, we can create humans from scratch. We can take some dust. And, and as they're about to continue, God says, well, wait a second. Get your own dust. Okay? Now, that's what creation is. It's giving being to existence. Carpenters take pre-existing materials, they're designers, and design is about taking pre-existing materials and finding patterns that which point you to intelligence. So uh, another way I illustrate this is you imagine a pan balance, you've got a veil that includes one side, and you've got one pound weight on this side, which is up. How much weight is on this other side? Well, you know, you know it's more than one, it could be two pounds, it could be five pounds, it could be a million pounds. And that's how it is with intelligent design, we know that there's an intelligence behind the things that we see in nature, and things in biology and cosmology, but getting to an infinite, personal, transcendent, creative god of Christianity is not something the logic of intelligent design can take us to, but it's friendly to Christian theism in a way that uh, atheism, uh, the, the Darwinian evolution, and ev- uh, materialistic evolutionary theories are not, so it gives you a lot, it takes you some way, you know, it's closer to the kingdom, but if you want the gospel, you're going to have to go to the gospel.
5: For those of you that want to learn more, this book, The Design Revolution, was very helpful to me amongst many of his other books. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. apologist. If you had one minute to be able to unpack for the audience, we interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Dr. Howe, what do Jehovah's Witnesses believe in? Jehovah's Witnesses, let's look at what they believe about Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses actually believe that Jesus Christ is Michael the Archangel from the Old Testament, who became a man in the New Testament, did his work for God, and then now is Michael the Archangel again. So he's not God in the flesh as Christianity in the Bible has always taught.
4: What would they say about salvation? Most of these groups,
5: in fact, I don't know any of these groups that, that, that doesn't say that salvation is by works. And Jehovah's Witnesses are very explicit that a person cannot be saved by faith alone, but has to do the appropriate works in order to be able to be with God after death.
1: Welcome back to the show Theology Matters And we are continuing our series this month On the Protestant Reformation If you like our Facebook page You can get uh, That's facebook.com slash Theology Matters with the Palouse Facebook.com slash Theology Matters with the If you go to that page You'll get our podcast And we started the, the very first show of the month With a history uh, of the Reformation And we had uh, two very brilliant gentlemen uh, were elders in their Presbyterian churches on, and did a, a two-hour in-depth show on the history of the Protestant Reformation. And last week we uh, had Nathan back on the show and, and did a uh, two-hour show on the doctrine of sola scriptura. And had a couple, couple uh, Catholics call in. It was a very good show, good, good conversation. And uh, so today we are we are dealing with. Uh, the doctrine of justification, sola fide. So, Nate, uh, let me throw another objection at you that I I hear sometimes from Roman Catholics, and that is that, uh, nowhere, uh, is the word, uh, do the words faith alone appear dealing with justification except in, in James. I think this is one of Robertson Chenis's arguments, and he, he argues that, uh, that in James uh is to make it clear that uh we 're not saved by faith alone that is uh, so that it kind of argues for the opposite conclusion as to what the, the Protestant reformers have come to what do you what do you say to that
2: well uh nowhere in the scriptures does it say that we should follow the Trinity or that the Roman Catholic Church is true <laughs>
3: so,
2: um well i I think any any you know uh, Person who's being clear-minded, intellectually honest about this, is uh, going to say that well, the specific word that we term today may not be in the scriptures, but the concept has to be in the scriptures. The concept. So you know, you know, there there are different you know phrases we use in theology. You know, we talk about you know God. Uh, Anselmian Perfect Being Theology well obviously you know that word is not used in the Bible Anselmian Perfect Being Theology but certainly the Bible teaches that God is great and glorious and there is no being which is such that he is greater than God the Bible teaches that in the Psalms and various other places but you know so the concept has to be taught in Scripture and the question is is the concept of Sola fide taught and the evidence I provided last time I think uh, sufficiently
1: shows that now
2: did you bring this up because you want me to answer the James two uh, objection to that
1: well, kind of... Yeah, because I, I can I can hear the hear the Roman Catholic right now saying, well James two specifically says it's not by faith alone, and and there's a handful of scriptures that they're going to go to, but I thought this one might be a good place to oh, start. Oh yeah. I mean yeah. whatever you very, think, if very, you're, very if you're in the middle of doing something else, or if you're if you were wanting to go somewhere else and hit this later. That, that's fine, too. I don't mean to throw you up. Oh, no, this is
2: yeah, no, this is a classic, classic text yeah. when you bring up justification by faith alone. You know, this right. isn't, uh, this is kind of the, um, you know, this is the classic argument against it. There are newer arguments against it, but, you know, let's go with the classics first, and we'll go on to the new stuff, right? <laughs> um, so uh, looking at then, you know, James 2, starting at verse 14 and going to 26, I actually wrote a paper uh, on this at Westminster Seminary, and um, I would say that uh, James is using different words here um, uh, and talking about uh, different sorts of things. How do we know this? Well, I, verse 14 tells us that. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So the question is about salvation. I think Robert St. Jenna says in his book, um, Not by Faith Alone, that Protestants try to say this is not about salvation. It is about salvation in some sense, in the sense it's addressing faith. So Paul is addressing about what makes somebody right before God, right? What James is addressing here is how do we know someone's faith is right? And obviously faith is something that's related to salvation. But what faith is a right faith? What faith is a wrong faith? And so... The words, you know, ao and how it's used here, you know, justify and you're not justified by faith alone and so on, um, this is talking about what makes somebody's faith right. And just if you just have faith by itself, um, then that shows you your faith is not right. So, for instance, if I go up and I say, ah, you know, I have faith in Christ and I go out and I buy, a, you know, a, a rocket launcher and I blow up houses or grenades or whatever, blow up houses and, you know, pillage and destroy things. And I never repent and I die, and you know, I live a life of sin and licentiousness and being unvirtuous and so on, um, but I 'd say I have faith. Um, well, I am not justified by that. So my faith is not shown to be right before God. it 's a faith of a demon, as that 's why it 's talking about. it 's contrasting the faith of believers with the faith of a demon, a faith of a person who has faith, a faith that's declared, a faith that's declared right it's not being declared righteous in the sense that a person is declared righteous, but it's someone's faith being declared right. What makes someone's faith to be declared right is that they have works. I know somebody has a true saving faith if they have works. You know, works are the fruit of justification. Um, they're not the root. But if you don't have fruit, you don't have a root. You know, right. anyway, I, I like I like to eat. I'll, you know, Devin, I like to eat a lot. I'm a, I'm a eater, unfortunately, and uh, trying to and lose we weight. Um, what's
1: that? I said we would get along great.
2: <laughs> That's right. I, I I love to eat. That's been my problem for a long time. But you know, I get hungry. My my belly rumbles, right? Um. So what what makes me hungry is not my my belly, you know, rumbling um, or grumbling. What makes me hungry is me not eating, but my stomach grumbling is a sign, an indication, an evidence that right. I'm hungry. And so my pulse doesn't make me alive, it shows that I'm alive. And so someone's faith is shown to be alive, it's shown to be right um, by their works. And someone's shown to have not a right faith, the faith of a demon, um, by not producing works, by having just faith. That's what a demon does. A demon doesn't have any good works. It, it does evil things, and it doesn't produce any good works. And but it, you know, it, it you know, it believes. In, it just has this simple believing in God, or believing. I'm sorry, believing that God exists, not believing in God. Believing that God exists. Certainly, demons believe that. And even Romans one says that all men know God, which knowledge includes belief, but they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And so, uh, if you look at the passage, and that's what's addressed here in the very first verses, it says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith faith? So it's talking about before men, how we know that one's faith is right. And so when you go down to, you know, this part about you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, the person here is being a reference to their faith here. Their faith is, made, is, is shown to be right by works and not by the faith of a demon. That's just... That's just what the passage is talking about, and so the passage is talking about something different related to salvation, as the Genesis points out, but different. It's talking about how somebody's faith is right, and then um, Romans is talking about how somebody can be righteous before God. So the difference: wow. how someone's faith is yeah. right, how you know that epistemologically, how you know, how you're able to know that, and and know that that faith is right. And then the question in Romans is how a person is right before God. That's the that's, uh, that's fundamental that's, difference. And that's what James 2 is talking about there.
1: Very good. Very good. I like that. Let me give the, the phone number out again, uh, 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. would love, love, love to, uh, to get some calls and talk with you guys. So Nate, what's uh, what's one of the other some of the other objections that uh, that uh, Rome levels towards the uh, doctrine of sola fide?
2: Well, you know, and it's 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 uh, actually not just Rome, unfortunately, and that's going to be part right. of the problem here. Is that it's also unfortunately Protestants that have recently uh, had arguments against it, and the Roman Catholic Church has obviously played up on this and they use those arguments. so I think it'd be helpful to discuss these movements and go into why yeah. I think um, th- these are actually arguments at Roman Catholic level, but the two groups I want to discuss is a new perspective on Paul and then the, what I, we're facing in the Presbyterian Church of America and um, in the Reformed churches is uh, the federal vision. Those are two groups that have challenged the doctrine of justification as classical as classically understood. And so, uh, all the arguments are very similar to the traditional Roman Catholic arguments, so it looks like we're going to be able to kill uh, two birds with one stone here, so to speak. So, So, um, the new perspective on Paul, you know, this is uh, something started by the work of E.P. Sanders arguing that, you know, ancient Judaism and that sort of thing in the the Second Temple Judaism time of Jesus was, you know, not uh, legalistic the way that Paul makes it sound, or how he thinks Paul makes it sound. But actually, they believed in a grace-based religion. So you have James Dunn and N.T. Wright kind of go off this historical analysis, and they say, oh, okay, well, um, then we have to re- re-see Paul as not attacking legalism, but attacking another issue. It's not about salvation anymore. It's about trying to, although salvation is related, they would say, it's about how you get into the church, and the, gen- the church is now open to Gentiles, not exclusively Jews. And this goes back to the issue of works of Allah law or, um, Aragon Namu and how that only refers to Jewish um, s- sorts of ceremonial badges that made someone a righteous Jew and so on in the Levitical laws in the Old Testament and so on and how that would exclude Gentiles and how Paul is trying to say no the church is open to Gentiles now come on in guys it's a, it's a party let's all, let's all be involved let's be more inclusive here is what it ends up being basically and it ends up being that well you know Paul's argument is that Christianity isn't Judaism basically what it boils down, and so you can be more inclusive, how these Gentiles come in, and so Paul is addressing in Romans, not about salvation, personal individual salvation before God, but it, discussing how, you know, we can include Gentiles, be more inclusive, how they can come into the church. In other words, it's not talking about soteriology salvation, it's talking about ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, um, and that's what's... Being stressed, there problem with that though. I think it's obvious. You read Romans three, and it uh, it says that the problem is that we've charged both we've seen so far in Romans one and two that both Jews and Greeks are sinned, That they haven't followed God's law. That no one is righteous. No, not even one. So the Mm -hmm. problem in Romans, the issue in Romans is sin. So the solution to sin has to be. Salvation has to be justification. The problem in right. Romans as stated by Paul in chapter 1, 2, and 3 is not about, you know, there's a problem with inclusiveness and ecclesiology. The problem is sin. We charge it both Jews and Greeks are, are both sinful. And so if the problem is sin, the solution has to be salvation. And so that's just a, you know, basic sort of thing. And, you know, Wright has his, uh, you know, idiosyncrasies in terms of, like, how he views, you know, certain terms and so on. And, you know, they're not touched upon by James Dunn and, you know, E.P. Sanders' work more was more foundational of this. But, you know, Wright will say things um, like, you know, righteousness, dikao, those Greek words, righteousness, and, you know, declared righteous or justified. But those words mean, you know, covenant faithfulness. And so when it says the righteousness of God, you know, uh, it's talking about um, God's covenant faithfulness. It's talking about covenant faithfulness. Righteousness means just means covenant faithfulness, A faithfulness to the, the church, to the covenant community. Now, uh, if you read, you know that this, you know, this view is, it seems incorrect. If you read Romans on just a, a, a just a basic reading, Romans three nine through ten says, "What then are we? Any what, what then? Excuse me. What then are we Jews any better off?" No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is covenantally faithful? No, not one. Or is it none is righteous? No, not one. So it's not saying here that no one's in the church or no one you know follows the church in some general way like King David or Abraham or something like that. It's saying that no one is actually righteous before God. No one is perfect before God. So if you righteous and declared righteous to be covenant faithfulness it doesn't make any sense of Romans 3.10 as it is written none is covenantly faithful no not one what? Well, there are obviously Jews in the church in the Old Testament if you're not a dispensationalist but there's also Jews in the new covenant church so this verse doesn't make any sense if you read it that way So, right, right. his view doesn't really seem to fit the data and then of course Romans 4.5 um, the Greek word therefore ungodly just means general pagan sinfulness and then you're declared righteous it's not talking about you know, uh, you know, someone being, you know, not following the Jewish laws and being part of the church it's talking about someone with a moral problem someone being ungodly someone being uh, you know, a pagan sinner someone not following God's law and then them being declared lawful or righteous so these are sort of like the uh, you know, problems it doesn't really fit the puzzle piece of the new perspective doesn't fit with what Paul is actually talking about in the book of Romans. Now you're going to have more Jew Gentile issues in, in Galatians, but still I don't think it fits very well there is, yeah, um, as well. So I think there's going to be issues there. Um, but you know, there's there's uh, going to be a final argument from the new perspective that actually kind of ties in with what the federal vision are saying. This other perspective called the new uh, called the federal vision that you know a lot of Protestants like. I think Doug Wilson, although he's not as bad, um or not verbally as bad, though he says things that I disagree with obviously. Doug Wilson, Steve Slishel, Peter Lighthart and those guys, um and Rich Lusk, uh, those guys are part of the federal vision, you know, the main representatives. And uh, you know, those folks uh will use arguments that's that that are inconsistent or jeopardize the doctrine of justification. What is, uh... And
1: so what 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 is the federal federal vision? I'm sure you know we I've heard of this a, a few times, not a whole lot, but what exactly? What is what is that view?
2: Well, it's basically this view that um, it, it wants to stress. It's very similar to Roman Catholicism, actually, in a lot of ways. Um, it's an overreaction to the sort of individualistic, pietistic, um, you know, revivalistic uh, Protestant thing we see in evangelical Protestantism. You know, very kind of, um, you know, me and my Bible and my experiences and, you know, have an altar call. They're very reactionary against those things. They become very high church, like kind of the like Roman Catholic churches, right? And so okay. what they'll try to say, Devin, they'll say things like, well, baptism actually, you know, you know, saves you. But actually, you know, it works like kind of like the Roman Catholic church views baptism. It works as, it, as, it, as it's actually affected upon you. It is like magic water. It has that sort of ability to do that, and so they'll hold that the sacraments are efficacious upon application. So when I, you know, I'm at church, I eat the bread and so on. That that actually works in me, and um, by just me just taking it, you know. And so baptism will just work by them just applying it, uh, apart from uniting it with faith and having the person being a believer and so on. So it it stresses that. It also stresses that um, people can fall away from salvation. Obviously, if you're baptized and you, you know, say a child is baptized and, you know, later on in life, you know, he starts, you know, going nuts and rejects the church, he falls away. Because obviously if he's saved by baptism, then we follow that when he messes up and does something silly and crazy, that... He's no longer a believer, and so he's lost his salvation, threatening the beautiful truth that nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ.
1: So that's, um, that's amazing to me that that that, that uh, view is kind of held within more of the Reformed churches. You know, Doug Wilson is right. Reformed guy, right? That's,
2: yeah, that's and, and they, they claim that. And Wilson Wilson actually does hold that view that I just described. He won't hold uh, things well. Uh, Wilson denies that there is a clear distinction between faith and works. And so when you deny that there's a clear distinction between faith and works, what ends up happening is that you have a law and gospel is mixed together, you have a gospel. You have like a, you know, works and faith kind of in a blender all meshed together. And that's kind of very similar to what we see in the Catholic Church, you know, because faith is a virtuous thing and it's a work ends up being the same thing as a work. They're not clearly distinguished the way they are in Galatians three that faith and works are distinguished in Romans 4, you know, faith is the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly. So working is distinct from faith and you have faith and works that are, that are almost kind of antithetically pitted uh, when Paul speaks of justification. Um, and so they, they reject that distinction a lot of the federal visionists do and they end up having those very formulations that are kind of Catholic-esque then. Um, so they'll hold to the perseverance, baptism. They'll mess up justification. And there's one area where the the new pers- uh, new perspective on Paul and the federal vision kind of come together here to really um, kind of have an, try to I think threaten the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And they try to say, and this is something that you know I think unfortunately many Protestant interpreters have fallen to. Um, Uh, contemporary evangelicals, they try to hold this together. I don't know how they do it, but they'll try to say there's a future judgment based on works. If we're justified right now initially by faith, but there will be a future judgment by works, and that will be based on, obviously, like I just said, our works. Um, So there'll be this future judgment by works. And so if I am, my my basis for going to heaven is, oh, you had faith, you know, back in 72, and, you know, you've done a lot of good things. Come on in, buddy, you know. If that's a basis, then, of course, that's not the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That doctrine just says that I rely on the merits of Christ and not on anything I have done. And so if I'm justified initially by faith, and then I have to tally it up with all my works I do in between them, then that seems to be inconsistent with what Paul teaches in Romans. And so the new perspective on Paul and the Federal Vision both do this, and, you know, I saw James White discuss this with N.T. Wright, and, you know, N.T. Wright wants to affirm a lot of the traditional things, but then you get him on this, and they just, you know, this whole biblical theology movement is so um, irrational and pietistic and, snobbish when how it interprets the Bible and so they hate reason and philosophy and systematics well I don't know how it works out it doesn't matter oh let's not, let's not think about it you know they, somehow they right. you know they work together even though they're complete contradiction which is I always find interesting <laughs> because in the last uh, book uh, uh, the last chapter in uh, first Timothy uh, Paul says that false doctrine is associated with contradiction antithesis in the Greek so wow. uh, contradictions are actually a sign of uh, not piety, but impiety and heresy at that. So we shouldn't embrace contradictions and things like that. Um, contradictions are just nonsense. So, um, But, yeah, they'll try to hold this biblical theology. They'll contradictions in Scripture. Well, it works together somehow. God's mysterious kind of hippie. We don't know. You know, it's very weird. So they'll do that. But it does threaten the doctrine of justification. And now the thought you're probably thinking is, well, how do you deal with those texts that seem to talk about a future... Judgment, and there's two ways of dealing with them, as I, as I would. You go to Romans uh, 2 here, you'll, you'll see a, a judgment by works that's uh, spoken of. And um, the, the two ways you deal with this uh, judgment by works, uh, it, and the way I would say that's consistent with uh, justification, is by either saying that, yes, we are rendered according to our works, I didn't start, I I said, yes, the Protestant can say we are justified on the basis of works. But it's not our works, it's Christ's works imputed to us. And so there is a judgment based on works. That's very true. Protestants can agree with that. I am justified by works, but they are not my works. They're Christ's. And they're imputed to me by faith and faith alone. And so when you are encountering these passages that talk about these uh, these accounting on works and credited according to works, we Protestants agree with that. It's it's, yeah, we are justified by works, and it's either your own works, in which case, according to the argument here in Romans, you're 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 done, you're done for. If it's by your works, because no one can follow God's law perfectly, but if you have Christ's works. Then you can be righteous before a holy God That has a perfect standard Perfect being has a perfect standard And so um, that's one way of dealing with it Another way In dealing with these sort of passages uh, Actually when I read one here uh, Romans 2 one I mentioned Romans 2 6 He will render to each one according to his works To those who by patience And well doing seek for glory And honor and immortality He He will give eternal life But for those who are self seeking And do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And I actually take this passage here to be referring to a principle that we have to obey—that we are judged by works, and um, it's either our works or Christ. So I would say that that's teaching a principle that's compatible with the doctrine of justification. But um, now the other view—the other view is to take passages like this, which I think I think it does work in Matthew 25. Um, when it talks about the great white throne judgment and, um, you know, those who did clothe um, them and those who did feed were defeating Christ and so on. And so um, the, the great white throne judgment in Matthew 25, I think is actually referring to the second way you can take passages like these. And that way is to say that believers, um, and actually very similar to the ethics, you could apply something very similar to the ethics of C.S. Lewis and eudaimonism in that, um, you know, a good work or doing the right thing will make you, flourish and happy at the end. but So I take it that at the end of the age that we'll stand before God and um, our good works will produce more happiness and contentment with God. We'll be happier. And so in that sense, we are rewarded. I think 2 Corinthians 5 mentions a judgment seat of Christ or being judged in Christ. And I take those judgments to be referring to basically um, human beings um, Having more uh, honor and happiness with God when their works, when their good works are named off, and people who have less of those works will not have as much honor and um, happiness, hearing they you know have uh, done what they uh, done well with the, go- the grace that God has given them and how they've responded to that and how they have uh, worked out their salvation in fear and trembling. So, I would then take it that these verses are either be to be taken to be uh, verses referencing to Christ's works, which are perfect. And then the other take would be to say, okay, yeah, these texts are talking about justifications by faith. You're already in heaven. You're already good, but there's a degree of happiness one will experience in that state. So those are the two ways, basically, that that you deal with these sorts of objections from, like, the Federal Vision and others, because I think Rich Luss actually just, uh, he's a Federal Vision proponent, and I think he just explicitly just straight out rejects, uh, justification, You know, Doug Wilson's kind of, you know, he's does some cutesy things. He kind of dances around a bit and doesn't really, you know, he, he's, he's a very good speaker, a very dynamic speaker. He doesn't say things straight out, although when he writes about losing your salvation, he's pretty straight out about that. But he tends to be very um, imprecise when he speaks about certain things and uh, uses certain terminology that's compatible with both views. But Rich Lusk and Peter Lighthart also tend to be more explicit in rejecting just classic, you know, Protestant formulations of justification. I think in a, I think it was an article that uh, Peter Lightheart wrote. He said that justification includes sanctity, so it includes God justifying the bodily, and that definitive, this you called definitive sanctification occurs when you are uh, justified. So you are somehow definitively sanctified and set apart, and given the super super you know grace, and then God declares you righteous. Uh, I think he said something in that effect. So you have guys like Rich Luss and Peter Lightheart who will say things more explicitly. But guys like Doug Wilson, um, you just can't catch him. You know, so. Is
1: is,
2: is Doug Wilson PCUSA? Uh, um, I think he's in crack. I think that's C-R-E-C. I think it's like the Christian Reform Evangelical Confession or con- churches. Yeah, I think that's what it is. And that's mostly uh, we regard as a federal visionist type churches, uh, people who are sympathetic towards the federal vision uh, will be in those churches. Although there are, I, if I've, uh, from I've gathered, there are actually some Reformed Baptist churches in there and so on. They're very um, inclusive. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, uh, you could probably hold to a traditional doctrine and be in those. So I'm not saying every church denomination in that, you know, affiliation right. is somehow, you know, hellbound or whatever. Not even that all federal visionists are that way. But I'm just saying that, yeah, that is typically not the uh, denomination where you'll, by and large, find federal visionists in that.
1: Surely, surely, uh, if you were someone like Doug Wilson, I'm just thinking there's no possible way he could actually hold to, like, the Westminster Confession or London Baptist, right? I mean, it would seem to really violate those. Well, you know, I I think
2: Wilson, well... Right, I, I, you know, I think Wilson would try to say he holds the Westminster Confession. I think, I think he'll try to interpret wow. it differently. And I actually think, um, which which begs a question, and this this is a question that I, you know, uh, the, the the head minister at my church says to me all the time. You know, you know, if you if, if they if they do hold the Westminster Confession, why do they why do they adopt a new confession that tries to have a different spin on justification? You know what's the explanation of that? If they're totally satisfied with the Westminster Confession and they believe their view is compatible with it, it's confusing why they have their own confession they've adopted that uh, um, seems to try to emphasize you're justified by an active, living, obedient faith. And the problem is that sounds like a Roman Catholic talking about his view of faith because it's virtuous, it's intrinsically great, and so uh, you know as a result you know, you're justified. So that's kind of the problem that you face there. So um, it, it's a it's it's, it's very slippery. It's it's hard to, to, to catch him and to find out exactly what he's saying because uh, he is very careful in the way he, he states things. You know, and to be honest, that being said, I don't know if I can entirely confidently expound upon his view, but I will say I have heard him say that, yeah, baptism does have certain effects and you can, and see does, in a sense, modify perseverance of the saints to, say, those who are finally elect, like the Roman Catholics, distinguish those who are, you know, justified and those who are finally elect. I think Doug does something like that uh, when he looks at, you know, certain passages like Hebrews 10, to actually referring to someone falling away, thereby, I think, uh, rejecting the classical uh, Calvinist doctrine of perseverance of the saints. So, um, you know, I uh, that's why I said, you know, it's more like Rich Lusk and Peter Lightheart who are you know, more explicit heavy hitters and tend to alter the, the doctrine around and, Make certain uh, refinements to it that I don't think are in line with the traditional doctrine of sola fide or
1: um, what know, faith we, alone. Let me bring this up too, as we're kind of talking about some of the different views of pro, um, justification, even within Protestantism. Uh, I've, I've talked to you a couple times, uh, just you know, between uh, you know, pro, no, privately, just you know, conversations in general on uh, the issue of, uh, of lordship salvation. And uh where I'm at there's several strands of churches that really adopt this Zane Hodge, um, Charles Ryrie. I know the two are not quite the same. View oh, of yeah. uh, free grace. In fact they have a whole movement, uh evangelical free grace alliance or something like that. When several churches are actually part of uh, of that movement. And um I'm, I'm teaching in this church a couple times on Wednesday nights, and uh, they they sometimes will subscribe to this view And um, one of the gentlemen there, very very good guy, nice guy, uh, has given me a couple books to read and to look through. And as I have, what it strikes me, and I've read MacArthur's, I've read the whole, you know, Gospel According to Jesus, Gospel According to the Apostles, Slave, Hard to Believe, and so on. And it seems as I go through some of these books uh, from the free grace side, it just seems as though uh, they almost redefine sola Fide. And uh, I was wondering if you had uh, had any thoughts on that. Are you familiar right, with yeah, the I, group of or? Yeah, yeah. It, no, no. I, I, you
2: know, I said I'm, you know, I can try to make parse nuances and be more precise with the new perspective and. Uh, federal vision, but I'm just going to say out and say it. I, I think that view is ridiculous um, in that I don't think there's any biblical basis for it, and um, I don't know how people take it. I mean, I wonder how they understand uh, Paul in Romans 6, uh, 1 through 2. It, can we sin all we want to so be gra- grace may abound? Well, that's actually true if you're a free grace person. That uh, that objection all could right. actually be legitimately generated. So, right. but that's an, that's an objection that Paul denies. So, yeah. I don't understand how you make that compatible. in James too. I know Zane Hodges. I was listening to Strimple on this a while back, but Zane Hodges uh, tried to say that the save there that refers to uh, uh, physical saving, having a prosperous life. You know, obviously a person who goes out and you know uh, does does uh, does math like in Breaking Bad. That guy you know, you've seen the series Breaking Bad. That person gets involved with all this. Meth and, you know, druggies and a person who lives a bad lifestyle in that and ruin. So saving there and can that faith save him, referring to the fact that, okay, yeah, what this is referring to here is just that I'm not going to physically experience um, greatness as I would if I were to follow God's law. So in other words, bad people, bad things happen. And good people, good things happen. And so if you have a faith that produces fruits, then good things will happen and you'll be saved from many of the corruptions of the world, you know. So you won't... uh, you won't have a Walt White sort of life where you, you know, all these awful things happen to you because you're selling meth or something, you know. So right. that, if I were to bring up meth, people would think that's weird. But now with all this stuff on TV, I can talk about people making meth and no one will think it's weird. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, so yeah, that's what Zane Hodges took James to just to be is that it's talking about having a prosperous life, and, that, and that's just an odd interpretation because it talks about demons having faith. Obviously, demons don't have have any sort of like saving faith so it's talking about a faith of an unbeliever and that faith is such that it doesn't produce any works at all um and so it's talking about unbelieving faith but obviously a, a true faith is the only sort of faith that can save you so i've never understood how that view can make any sense at all it seems so uh counterintuitive and i was talking to you about how, you know there are many men who are very intelligent uh, i would respect that hold that view and i was not even aware of it I, just find it shocking. Um, and the reason why I find it shocking is I, I'm Presbyterian. I, I've been in a few Reformed denominations. And this topic of lordship, salvation, and um, in contrast to the Free Grace, St. Hodges movement, this doesn't even come up. We don't even talk about this stuff. This is like, you know, uh, we don't even take it seriously. It's it, yeah, So it's just it's interesting how um, in one group, more Baptistic and evangelical groups, you'll get this discussion, but in Reformed churches, it won't even be generated, and John Calvin never taught, and Martin Luther never taught that uh, you, you're justified by faith, and you can just burn down buildings. I mean, that's, uh, yeah, I, it, I, find, I find it a, a shocking and astounding, and um, the depths of uh, people's depravity intellectually to come up with such a, uh, you know, an idea is, is saddening to me on one, one hand and just shocking on the other. So I've never quite understood it. And I don't understand how they deal with verses that talk about knowing people by their fruits. Never quite understood that. How they deal with church discipline and handing people over to Satan. Never understood that very much either. It just really doesn't seem to make any sense. And then you're looking at Matthew 25 and the throne judgment, and where Christ is naming off their works, um, all the believers, the evidence that they're believers. Uh, And he shows the unbelievers as evidence they're unbelievers, their works. Obviously, not justifying them, but the
1: works serve as evidence that they're justified by faith. Um, yeah.
3: First, first John, I, I
1: just uh, don't understand you know, it. First, first John is a bunch of different. You know, this is how you know that you know you come to know me is if you keep my commandments. You know, and those who say that you walk with Christ and yet walk in the darkness, you know, you lie, and the truth, truth isn't in you. So, so you know, basically, the whole book
2: of First John. <laughs> I mean yeah. that that whole epistle you as I mean I don't know how Zane Hodges deals with or proponents of Zane Hodges' view deal with that uh perspective I and when I, when I heard it I'm like are you, are you serious people hold this I had a, uh, you know um so it's always been a, a mystery to me as to why people hold this I mean I guess the motivation
1: is to keep justification by faith pristine but yeah that, that uh, is, that's the I mean I, I think yeah i think i think the motivation i think is they're they're trying to i think they're trying to keep Sola fide um you know li- like you say free from works but it just uh, it just seems to really redefine what is meant at least what the reformers meant by Sola fide yeah it it does i there's no
2: reformer that ever taught that that's an entirely new invention um if yeah, I don't know any historical precedent of that and any historic Protestant, that's just so right. odd. Um, I just don't understand the, philo- I guess philosophically I don't understand either, just how is it, uh, why you'd have trouble with saying, okay, yeah, works serve as evidence for something just like um, my pulse serves as evidence of, um, of, of me being alive. And my stomach grumbling serves as evidence for me being hungry, but it doesn't make me hungry. Um, you know, just like right. smoke. Um, is evidence of fire but it doesn't make fire it's evidence of it um when there's smoke there's fire right i mean there's no philosophical problem with that at all that's perfectly consistent with fire burning fire being what it is and having conditions by which it's lit enough and and there being signs and evidences of it but they're not the same thing so i don't even know what sort of i mean philosophical and theological motivations there would be for this it's It's astounding to me, really. I mean, maybe maybe I need to rewarn the debate. I might be coming off ignorant about it, but I I just, I've never understood it.
1: Well, yeah, I thought uh, I I should bring it up just because I I know we're talking about some other views of Sola Fide, and as I've read some of these books, it just seems like a real redefinition of what um, what Sola Fide is, as the Reformers at least understood it. Well,
2: yeah, I, I, it's, it's, it's strange to me, I, and that's why when, I've, when I went to seminary, I heard about this view, and I, I, I heard you talking, about it. I didn't even think anybody held to it. I thought, oh, you know, Strimple was talking about that like in like the 80s or 90s. Jeez, that's <laughs> like 20 years. No one seriously entertains that, and then I was talking to you, oh, and, it, you know, and I was actually talking to my uh,
1: Beyonce, and she was mentioning somebody too that held that view. Yeah, I was I was uh it was uh well, was a month ago. I was listening to uh, Charles Stanley on the radio. And I like Charles Stanley. I mean, he's a pretty solid guy and he's about probably the only maybe him and one other person that are on TBN that are actually, you know, sound to listen to. Uh but you know, he does this, this little question of the day that comes in and one of the questions was can a can a unrepentant Practicing homosexual uh, Go to heaven And uh, you know I kind of knew right where he was going to go And he he basically gave like a Three or four minute answer about how The consequences are devastating How it's going to be terrible And you're going to feel the consequences here And you're not going to bring blessing to your life But the end of the conclusion was yeah Yeah they absolutely still go to heaven And that just struck me as odd You know again when when I'm talking about somebody that has struggles with homosexuality, it was like someone that is unrepentant, living that lifestyle, won't stop, and calls themselves a Christian.
2: Right. You know, it's, it's like he, somebody who's uh, living with their girlfriend or, you know, shacking up with somebody, you know, and just not getting married to them and just sleeping around. A person yeah. who sleeps around with, with women all their life, uh, is that person, if he never repents, if he had walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, you know, put the put the coin in the jukebox, um, or is he gonna? Is he gonna go to heaven? Well, no. If he doesn't repent and he just spends his life, you know, just throwing himself around out there, you know, messing around with women and never repenting, I, the guy's not gonna go to heaven. I, I just can't believe that 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 view is
1: is is well, I think really I logically mean, logically consistent. I think one, if, if one really held that view, uh, you could you could believe somebody could become an atheist down the road and a Christ hater. Because if there's nothing you can do that can separate the love oh, of God, that's a, yeah, yeah. That's, and I, I, I don't, I, I'm not, I don't have the page and the number in front of me, but I believe Zane Hodge said that somewhere. I, uh, uh, I don't know for sure. I'm not saying that dogmatically, but I remember having this discussion with one of my professors in, uh, in seminary, and he was saying, well, you know, it's it's sure just inconceivable that 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 could happen, um, you know, but. I mean actually, true, I actually I uh, actually
2: know of people that that has ha- that have that has happened to I have a friend that happened to was a reform believer and went to church and then
1: now he's uh <laughs> he's not a he's no longer he's an atheist so what, do you,
2: I,
3: you know what, what do you do you
1: I, I was just thinking I remember a time when um uh, at the apologetics conference uh, our school will host debates uh during this conference and uh, one particular year, Michael Shermer came, and I think he was debating Dinesh D'Souza. And I remember because I was wanting to go talk to Michael Shermer. I was standing right there, I mean right there, and as he was talking to some people, and it was one of these free grace uh, Christians talking to him. And then Michael Shermer had made the, the statement that when when he was younger, because you know it's, he tells this little story about. Uh, how he was a he was a born again Christian and he used to go knocking on the doors and it was like Amway and da 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 da. But this Christian was seriously trying to assure him that when he died he would still go to heaven because he had uh made that profession at one time. And here the guy is a uh, you know, a Christ hater, an atheist. And it was like Man, yeah, it's like I couldn't believe that guy was saying that stuff. I was like, and Michael Sherman laughed. He laughed at that. He said, "Well, okay. I mean, I guess then I'll at least I'm covered either way." That that is a pretty <laughs> story. That really happened. I remember it like yesterday because I I was in such so, like, shock listening to it. That is just astounding.
2: I that means that that gives people no uh, motivation to to live a, a godly life, and it, it's it. I mean, you can do anything. I mean, that actually is the, the it seems like they actually buy the Roman Catholics' argument and say, well, yeah, if you're justified by faith, you can just do whatever you want to do. That's right. So do whatever you're going to do. It's like, that's mm. that's like them living out that reductio. It's it's really strange why they think that. Um, so, I mean, I, and then people who are trained in, 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 uh, in philosophy can think through those sorts of things. I don't know why they would want to hold a position it's just confusing to me but um you know i they they do i mean i know a lot of people that are really smart that hold weird views so maybe i shouldn't say it like that uh but yeah, I mean, it's it, that's that is that is very odd. I, I don't I don't understand it.
1: Um, yeah, and I don't but, uh, but to be clear, and, and I think you would agree. I'm not. We don't bring this up to try and we're not trying to ridicule Christians that believe that. I really believe it's a perversion. I, I mean, I'm not saying those who hold this view are not saved. I believe I know many people that do hold this view, and I, I think you know I look up to them, and some of them are mentors to me, and I'm not saying that. But I really do think this view is just. I really do think it's a bad. I think it's just. A, I think it's heretical, to be honest. So I don't. I don't bring this up to try and mock Christians or say that they're stupid because I know there's intelligent people that hold this. But I really, I think. I think it's a terrible view. I just think it's a real bad theological well, yeah, view. Yeah,
2: it's very similar to um, hyper Calvinism, almost like it's a bad application of a doctrine. Right. Very, very similar to that Yeah, like how a hyper-Calvinist will say things like And I mean, I, I guess it's understand, I've had people ask me questions before Like um, They've said things like, well, you're a Calvinist Why evangelize I guess, I guess like To them, they might see that as paradoxical at first And maybe these people see it that way I'm not quite yeah. sure I've, I, I've actually never Interacted with somebody Who holds that view I just think that's 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 strange and odd. I just can't. I, yeah, it, it's hard for me to understand. Um, I, I, I'd be curious to read their literature to figure out um, their motivations and reasons for holding it um, and what scripture verses they use. But um, yeah. Uh, yeah, one wonders how that how this all works out theologically and how they deal with certain texts.
1: Right, right. I don't know how much of a movement it is. Anymore uh, But I know Like I say man I know at one time it was, it was very It was really going on And so There's still Like I say A lot of churches Where I'm at Where that view Is definitely uh, Definitely held And like I say I know the people At home that are brilliant um, It just Seems Bad to me But So Wrap us up my friend We got a few minutes here Kind of Kind of wrap this uh, This section up Funny No No uh, No calls on this show, either that's just, that's too bad. Uh, I'm I'm, some... I'm
2: surprised about that. You know, no nobody wants to. <laughs>
1: yeah, that, yeah that, I, just, uh, why, I just I just say that so people know the phone lines have been open and I opened them up about four times, so it wasn't for lack of uh, you know.
2: Well, uh, yeah. Call, I don't know. I don't know if, if our Roman Catholic callers may have uh, had enough of the discussion or not. That's probably part of it. Uh, certainly, but uh, yeah. Well, let me let me, I guess, uh, bring together a a few threads, but uh, before I do that, I kind of wanted to go into a a common argument uh, I hear from people who say that Sola Fide is unhistorical or not in church history, and it's a new invention that the Protestants made up. That's something I hear very often. And so, uh, I kind of wanted to address that briefly, if you don't
1: mind. Yeah, yeah, we got uh, about so six minutes, five, six minutes. So Okay, yeah. So basically the,
2: the two ways you want to deal with that is first actually give them quotes where they, I mean, I've, I've read some church history and it's evident to me the church taught this. But um, one way is to mention that, you know, there was corruption of the gospel when the apostles were around. How much true would it be that when the apostles died out that we would expect corruption? So even if someone gives you this, historical, you know, church argument, there's no point in time until the Protestant Reformation, you would still have the case that that wouldn't be a necessary, like, defeater or reason to doubt Sola fide be because after all, the gospel was distorted when the when the apostles were around, so we would expect even more distortion uh, after they died out. So that's one way of dealing with it. But I actually think the church history attests and shows greatly that um, the doctrine of justification by faith was not just a Protestant... You know, 15th century invention. It was actually something that goes back to um, the early church fathers and to some points uh, in the medieval church. I think uh, Jaroslav Pelikan says um, in the Riddle of Roman Catholicism on pages 48 and 49, not a new Protestant gospel then, but the gospel of the true church, the Catholic church of all generations, is what the Reformed claimed to be espousing. Uh, Substantiation for this understanding of the gospel came principally from the scriptures. Whenever they could, the Reformers quoted the fathers of the Catholic Church. There was uh, more to quote than their Roman opponents found comfortable. Every major tenet of the Reformation had considerable support in the Catholic tradition. That was eminently true of the central Reformation teaching of justification by faith alone. And I think just some quotes uh, here to, to see this, e- even early on in 1st Clement, uh, this was this was written before um, the second century. this was um, this was in the very first century uh, around the apostles. This is what First Clement says. All the Old Testament saints, therefore, were glorified and magnified not through themselves or their own works or their righteous actions that they did, but through His will. And so we, having been called through His will in Christ, are not justified through ourselves or through our own wisdom or understanding of piety or works that we have done in holiness of heart, but through faith, by which the Almighty God has justified all who have existed from the beginning, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And uh, actually, Ambrosie Astor has a very short quote here. God has decreed that a person who believes in Christ can be saved without works. By faith alone, he receives the forgiveness of sins. And then... Victorinus um, writes this for faith alone grants justification and sanctification Thus, any flesh whatsoever Jews or those from the Gentiles is justified on the basis of faith not works or observances of Jewish law and then Jerome says God justifies by faith alone couldn't get any clearer than that huh uh, and then Osinius says in uh, commenting in James 2.23 I guess he interpreted James the way I did Abraham is the image of someone who is justified by faith alone, what he believed was credited to him as righteousness. And um, Victorinus also writes, Every minute mystery which is intacted by our Lord Jesus Christ asks only for us by faith. So only faith. And Christostom says, It is being saved by grace here, he shows God's power, in that he has not only saved but he has even justified and led them to vote, bo- not boasting and this too, without needing any works by looking for faith only faith only. So, I mean, you, there are oh, about another 40 of these quotes, but I'm not going to fill up all this time talking yeah. about that. Uh, they, I mean, this shows you just how prevalent this is, doesn't it?
1: It does. It does, man. It's- we are out of time and, uh, brother. I want to thank you for being on. I'm going to try and get uh, one of my professors to come on next week and deal um, a little more with Roman Catholicism. Maybe just go over some uh, general questions and open up the phone lines again for callers. And um, I think that that would be good. If not, if if he's busy and can't do it, uh, we're going to actually replay the debate of Nathan Taylor and Devin Rose that took place in December, and what a fitting what a fitting way to end our series on uh, the Reformation and on Halloween, uh, or we should say Reformation Day of all days, right? Indeed.
2: That is very fitting, and uh, thanks for having me on, Devin. I appreciate it, and God bless you, brother.
1: All right, man. God bless. And uh, we will see you guys next time. God bless.
0: Where are the spurses? Read the Word. Read the Word. We need sound
3: theology. It must not be
5: forgotten that religious controversy is inevitable, where living faith in definite truth dwells side by side with error and evil. And preachers may remember that controversial preaching is full of power and full of interest. This is to say that the Reformers did not maintain the status quo in the church. When they expounded the Scriptures, they rocked the boat. They created waves. And the safest way to have a nice little ministry is just preach certain portions of the Bible and overlook other portions. But if you start in chapter 1, verse 1, and your commitment is to preach through the entire books of the Bible, verse by verse, and not neglect any doctrine that is set forth in the text, rest assured, controversy will result. Every true revival is born in controversy and leads to more controversy. That has been true, He said, ever since our Lord said that He did not come to bring peace upon the earth, but a sword. I would remind us all that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. And we must take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and the preaching of the Reformation that brought down the strongholds of the day was the preaching of the Word of God and it was controversial preaching. If you come back to the Bible and a resurgence in inerrancy, it will always lead to a resurgence of Reformed theology. Because Reformed theology is nothing more, nothing less, than the sum and the substance of the pure teaching of the Word of God. If one desires not to have a controversial ministry, then don't preach the Bible. But if you do preach the Bible, you will preach the doctrines of grace. God will use it to the bestowing of blessing upon His church and upon His people, and it sets in right motion everything that is right in the church. The doctrines of grace purify our worship. It purifies our fellowship. It purifies our own spiritual lives. It sets in motion our ministries. It purifies our evangelism. It inflames our missions. This was part of the epicenter of the shock of the Reformation that was unleashed upon Europe and sent its earthquake effects across the Atlantic revibrate here in the colonies of America. This is the preaching of the Reformation.